The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode in our special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Starting November 30th, world leaders are gathering in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts looks at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts features elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convened to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables are hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have, as the chairperson of our roundtable discussion this time around, David Sandelow, inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University and a former senior energy official in the Obama administration. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation for COP28. However, It should be noted for this, as for all DSR Network podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chair people of the roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion, the latest in our series, The Road to COP28. You hope you will join us each and every week from now through COP28 to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event and the issues to be discussed there, and in the weeks following COP28 to join us for our follow-up discussions. In addition to our regular panel, we were fortunate enough to host a one-on-one conversation between Allison Agston, the director of the USC Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication, and curator at the Wrigley Institute for Environment and Sustainability, and Hana Al-Hashimi, 
the UAE's chief climate negotiator for COP28. We hope you enjoy their conversation, which provides key insights ahead of this important summit. We'd like to welcome today Hannah Al-Hashimi, UAE Chief Climate Negotiator. Before her appointment as the UAE's lead climate negotiator for COP27 and COP28, Hannah Al-Hashimi was a senior advisor in the office of the president of the 73rd session of the United Nations General Assembly. She led on environment and climate action, sustainable energy, frontier technologies, and information and communications technologies. She also served as the liaison with the group of 77 and China. She has lots of other um, previous experience working in UN Industrial Development Organization in Vienna, Austria, and consulting for social business at Munich Advisors Group in Germany. She holds a Master's of Sciences in International Relations and a Bachelor's of Commerce in General Management and the Social Context of Business. So today we're going to talk to her about COP28. I'd love to start by asking Hannah your outlook on the global stock take, but first for people who don't know exactly what the global stock take is, it gets that phrase gets tossed around a lot. Could you explain it and then share uh, where you think we're at right now? Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you. And it's such a pleasure to be able to join you on today's podcast. Um, thank you for having me. Listen, the world is gearing up uh, for, for COP28 for what we hope will be a monumental COP. It's a unique opportunity in a year that is both mired with climate catastrophes and entire um, understanding of just how deep the crisis we're in is, as well as an ma amazing opportunity, um, incredible momentum, political will that we're seeing uh, to be able to come uh, to be able to connect as an international community to be able to show that multilateralism works and to be able to work together uh, towards a most, more sustainable future. Um, the global stock take gives us a lot of um, opportunity to be able to do that. Uh, everybody has heard of the Paris Agreement, which was the um, kind of the the uh, uh, gold standard of agreements in this process, at least, or the, the last moment that really brought hope um, into this process, where you had uh, over 190 parties come together in Paris uh, in 2015 and agree um, on a, a climate plan for the planet. Um, and how it is that all countries would contribute um, while some need to act before others, while some need more support than others, but how it is that the entire community can work towards um, a, a climate-neutral future uh, by mid-century. Uh, in in COP28, we had the opportunity to assess whether we're on track, what the gaps are, and how it is we're going to bridge them as the international community, including what support is needed um, for uh, vulnerable communities and for developing countries uh, that are also struggling with other broader sustainable development challenges of poverty eradication um, and the need uh, for, for development. So um, with that in mind, the stock take uh, really is sort of this moment in time that's looking back while also looking forward, um, where countries can come together to see if, if we're on track, how it is that we can get there together and really strengthen, um, in my mind, uh, multilateral and demonstrate once again that it can work. Um, and if it can work for climate, it can work uh, really in, in, in other fields as well. So speaking of countries that might need more support than others, I would love to hear where we're at with progress towards the loss and damage fund. 
Great question, Alison. Um, and that actually is giving me a lot of hope right now. Uh, I had the privilege of representing the presidency on the transitional committee, which was set up at COP27, where the fund and funding arrangements for loss and damage were established. Um, so this transitional committee was set up to come up with uh, the rules of the road, uh, kind of the who, what, how, where, when um, for the fund, the financing, um, and how that would work. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the topic, um, really the Paris Agreement and the climate architecture uh, under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, the UNFCCC, uh, covers Mitigation, so the reduction of emissions um, from, from the atmosphere. Adaptation, so building resilience against the impacts of climate change that are already happening. Finance to support, um, of course, those uh, in, in, in reaching their climate targets and how it is the means of implementation, including capacity building um, and technology, uh, to be able to actually work on those mitigation adaptation efforts. Um, but also in the instances where you can't build resilience, um, such as uh, the extreme weather events, such as the um, uh, growing challenge of, of sea level rise um, that, you know, in the case of some countries uh, can impact their entire population um, over the next uh, 50 years or so. Um, in those instances, uh, there's the topic of, of loss and damage, which is how is the international community going to come together in global solidarity to be able to address this? Um, what we saw at, at pre-COP uh, this year in uh, at the end of October was uh, over 100 um, Sorry, uh, over 100 countries invited, but 80 countries uh, present, um, over 60 ministers present, giving the strong signal of how they view loss and damage um, as something that can demonstrate global solidarity, demonstrate that the system can respond, um, and that the agreement and what was promised in Sharm el-Sheikh can absolutely be delivered in Dubai. That gave impetus uh, to the Loss and Damage Transitional Committee um, in their final meeting. It was an extraordinary meeting um, that was convened in Abu Dhabi right after the pre-COP um, to reach an agreement on recommendations that, while not perfect, um, absolutely present a starting point for how it is that we're going to um, provide the nation for nations that need it. Uh, it sets in place uh, requirements um, for uh, something that can be set up quickly within the World Bank as an interim solution for that solution to be assessed in, in whether it's actually uh, achieving, it's actually accessible for, for communities that need it, it's, it's actually achieving um, the intentions uh, of the COP uh, and NCMA um, and uh, achieving the recommendations needed. Um, it goes through a scope of uh, responding to both slow onset and extreme weather events, uh, as well as economic and non-economic losses, such as the loss of culture, um, and, and other losses. Uh, and it'll be additionally um, uh, benefited by allowing for a wide variety of sources while calling on developed countries uh, in, a, in, 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 in accordance with um, the current provisions within the Paris Agreement, it calls on, on, on developed countries to go first um, in, in financing the fund. We've heard some really great news um, over the last couple of weeks um, in terms of uh, positive intentions uh, from developed countries, most recently um, from the European Union uh, in, in Dar es Salaam and Jabber, the COP president-designate's recent visit there. Um, and so we're hopeful uh, to see uh, positive pledges that brings the momentum uh, forward in how it is that we're going to get support where it needs to be. Um, we very much want to ensure uh, that we're able to support uh, lives and livelihoods um, 
through this process while we're also looking um, at reducing emissions and how it is that we, we, we move forward. So that's really good news um, on the loss and damage front. Uh, coming ahead of the COP, um, it does mean that we have a, a major uh, deliverable for COP28 um, that's largely uh, largely ready um, to be uh, to be uh, adopted by the whole uh, by all parties, um, and that hopefully allows us to focus then uh, on a stock take on this overarching um, way forward uh, that we need. There's so much that I want to touch on uh, that you just said, but I think I'll start with something that is maybe near and dear to my heart. In addition to running a center at USC focused on climate journalism and communication, I'm also the university's first curator in its Environment and Sustainability Institute. And so my ears pricked when you said um, loss of culture. What do you mean when you're talking about loss of culture and what do we need to do to prevent culture from being lost? Thanks, Alison, for that question. Um, this is an area that uh, really requires probably more understanding. Um, within the UNFCCC, uh, there's an agreement um, to set up uh, the or operationalize uh, what's called the Santiago Network. Um, so this will be kind of a technical support space um, for developing countries to better understand um, the extent of losses and damages. Um, so non-economic losses, such as loss of culture um, and, and and loss of uh, sites uh, of, of significance um, could cover, for example, um, if a hurricane uh it destroys um, a monument uh, or perhaps a, a graveyard uh, or a space um, that, that of, of meaning for a community. Uh, what is it exactly that can be done? It's not, um, you know, and this was an, an, a conversation that's just starting and for us to start to understand um, that while this isn't a liability or reparations conversation, um, we do acknowledge uh, that, that countries that have done the least to cause climate change are often um, the ones facing the most losses. Um, and how is it exactly that we can preserve that? I've heard really interesting um, examples uh, of, of what it is that can be done, but can't really say that um, we're at a space where this is kind of concretized and, and uh, uh, well cat cat categorized, but it is a space that certainly your institute could contribute um, to the learnings of. Um, we do hope to operationalize the Santiago network um, as a network uh, in and of itself, um, this, this COP as well, um, so that we can build our understanding uh, of, of these areas and ensure that we're able to preserve, we're able to benefit also from um, uh, from from culture and, and knowledge more broadly, including local and indigenous knowledge, um, including sort of centers of, of, of excellence and expertise, um, and ensuring that we're, we're deepening our understanding from all sources of knowledge um, as, as we're working towards climate solutions. We want to ensure that uh, we're really leaving, leaving no one behind in that sense, um, and cultural uh, centers allows us to uh, deepen our, our, our connection um, with different communities as well. I really loved those evocative responses you gave because I think loss of culture might feel very amorphous to some people, but monuments, graveyards, those I thought were really, um, really made it quite clear the, um, the things in the world that we call culture and what we might be considering. So thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm sitting here right now 
in Palm Springs, not far from where uh, negotiators from the U.S. and China recently met to discuss climate change. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on um, progress in that arena or uh, feelings about how that progress might help shape what's coming in the weeks ahead. Thanks for that question, Alison. Um, and we, we certainly, I think all signs uh, of greater multilateralism on the road to COP and greater international cooperation on the road to COP are good signs. Um, climate change, as you know, is something that can't be solved by any one country, um, by any one organization or any person. Um, and so really having uh, the U.S. and China as two of the um, world's uh, you know, uh, most active parties in the process. In, in the UNFCCC, you have 198 parties, but um, some are more active uh, than, than others. Um, but also uh, two of the ones that have uh, very, um, very active uh, industrial sectors um, have a, a lot of mitigation uh, efforts that they're both already doing, uh, as well as good practices and, and international cooperation with other countries. Um, having them meet and, and look at uh, sort of what they see as a way forward um, is helpful, I think, to all in the process, um, and some would say also instrumental to agreements in the past. So we've had very good signals coming out of there. Um, I think there are some very positive signals uh, for the stock take as an opportunity for course correction um, in and of itself. Um, I think some of the signals specifically on um, the energy sector that a lot of people are particularly uh, focused on um, is is helpful, um, including uh, the reference to tripling uh, renewables capacity globally by 2030. Um, of course, both countries are, are very active uh, in the space and have great practices. Uh, what we're hoping is to be able to, to spread that um, speed of growth of uptake of renewables in, in all parts of the world, um, really, so that it's uh, um, it's something that can can help many regions. Uh, and this is in line, of course, with uh, our presidential um, renewables pledge as well. Um, I think we saw positive signals um, overall on, on adaptation as well, on global finance. We've also had good news um, over the last week uh, from the OECD in, in indicating that uh, we're more on track towards achieving the 100 billion um, pledge uh, and that hopefully uh, the 2022 figures will come forward and say that they have been achieved. Um, this is uh, something that was due in 2020 as a, a promise from developed countries um, to developing countries to support uh, their transition with $100 billion every year um, from 2020 to 2025. Um, we're also in the midst of working towards a new goal that will apply from 2025 onwards. Um, and so achieving the first goal, of course, helps establish um, a level of trust. And we do hope that we are able to get there. Um, we do uh, continue uh, to uh, to work towards um, ensuring that we're not just setting ambition, um, but supporting uh, the implementation of that, um, particularly bearing in mind, uh, you know, countries uh, where um, uh, they also have to tackle challenges of, of poverty eradication, hunger, um, education, and, and how do you uh, set up then um, a development model uh, that allows you to um, also have uh, a, a climate neutral future. Um, so uh, positive signals in short, uh, hopeful that this, uh, you know, can continue with a really positive momentum um, towards the COP and that it helps shape uh, an ambitious response uh, to what we're seeing in the, in the global stock take. Now, Al Hashimi, thank you so much for your time and for your thoughtful answers to these questions today. 
My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alison. Um, and really, I hope that everyone, whether you're joining in person or virtually, um, can benefit from the energy uh, that we're seeing going into COP28 uh, that's really focused on solutions, on everyone coming together uh, to deliver, to act, and to unite. Um, we're honored to be able to host the world here um, and really hopeful for a strong uh, outcome uh, among all parties, but also within within the action agenda. Um, and we really hope uh, to, to get this new phase of what we're calling actionism um, driven forwards and, and that it can help uh, in, in driving the future that we all um, need. Thanks, Alison. Greetings and many thanks to the DSR network for organizing this roundtable the third in DSR's Road to COP28 series. My name is David Sandalow. I am the inaugural fellow at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. And today we'll be discussing how the world is doing in responding to climate change and what must be done to address climate change in the years ahead. We'll discuss an important diplomatic process, the global stock take that addresses those exact questions. And we, we have an extraordinary group of 10 global leaders and experts to discuss these topics. And I'm gonna introduce them as they come into the conversation. We'll start with Ambassador Laurence Tubiana, uh, a global leader on these topics for many years. Laurence is CEO of the European Climate Foundation, professor at Sciences Po in Paris. And before joining European Climate Foundation, Laurence was France's climate change ambassador and special representative for COP21. And in that capacity, she was a key architect uh, of the Paris Agreement. Laurence, welcome. Uh, we, we couldn't have a better person to kick us off here and provide us with some background. And could you just, for, for our listeners, provide some background? What, what is the Global Stock Tape? So first, thank you, David, for the invitation uh, at a very, very important crucial moment. The, and it's good that the Global Stock Tape is part of this very important discussion with such uh, incredible people around the table. The global stock take is really was sought as a core element of the Paris Agreement. Why? Just for the anecdote, at the initial stage of the negotiation, most of the government thought that we, we were designing a process for a number of years, like let's say 10 years. And then after that, we will reconvene and redefine, like in Kyoto, that there was a period and then the sunset closed and then we rebuilt. My, my point, I push for no, it's a permanent framework. It's long-lasting, but then we have to have review mechanism and dynamism in the agreement. So that's why, uh, one, we push the idea of it is not permanent. It is permanent. It is a permanent obligation, but it has to be revisited because of, again, an agreement on an enormous climate uh, change problem and an enormous economic and social transformation cannot be just set in stone and just let go. So the idea was we need stock take to, and because of course we don't have, of course, a, an international court of justice to judge whatever every piece of um, contribution that, because it's based, of course, Paris Agreement is based on two elements and it's a hybrid agreement. One top down is a contribution, the plans that the clients, the countries have to put forward every five years. Uh, and the other side uh, is really the, the top down element is the rules, uh, is the rule book. So this is what are these two elements. But then, of course, this unilateral proposal by the government, the national determined contribution, has to be revised against the global goal of Paris that are there. 
well below 2 degrees C, possibly keeping the window open for 1.5, and having, of course, a net zero emission embedded in a very complex in a way, language, but the language that was palatable to the negotiators, that was really to have peaking emissions and then uh, net zero emission and net negative after 2015. So we need a moment in time, which is now, to say, where are we? Are we in a catastrophic situation? We will discuss that certainly along this roundtable. Uh, did Paris has an effect? What is missing? What are the gaps? And very, very importantly, because again, this end, the first NDCs were plans when people didn't know even what was what will be embedded in the Paris Agreement. They were a proposal before even Paris. Now people know what is decarbonization means, and we certainly will discuss how difficult it is to have these decarbonization plans. But now we have to revise them because the phase we are in the investment implementation of Paris fully uh, since uh, 2021. And then we have to design the new phase, which is for these NDCs after 2025 and 2030, depending on the dates of the commitments. These have to be delivered by COP30 in 2025 in Belém. So the global stock take is very important to say, where are we? Because that's a peer review element. And in a way, the scientific assessment of did we have any make any progress? What is lacking? Are we... Uh, really an, an impossible situation to reach uh, the targets of well below 2 degrees C. Is there any uh, difference in the real economy, uh, in the global, in the governance of the countries, even on the citizen perception of Paris? So there are many questions about this global stock take. But then it's important that how we negotiate that, and of course that's where, you know, where the credibility of Paris Agreement is at stake, People, in a way, commit in 2015 to think that we are very, very ambitious. And maybe some of them, some big countries in particular, think that maybe it would be better to revise these commitments. So it's crucial that we embed in the global stock take the plan for the next five or ten years. And that we have a, a system that describes the efforts in a much more precise way, how the countries has to deliver. So it is a very exercise. And there is a, now two concepts, which is still in a way around. One is global stock tech is just looking backwards. Did we deliver? Didn't we deliver? And then, of course, with a certain acrimony, you can imagine, between developed countries and developing ones. But then there is a forward-looking. What do we do, should do now, from now, for 2025, for 2030, and beyond that? And again, with now more and more a linkage between the five, 10 years period of the NDCs and the long-term pathway decarbonization that are embedded as well in the Paris Agreement. So for me, it's a moment of truth for Paris. Not the easiest solution, situation, not the easiest moment for all the geopolitical reasons we know. Uh, and we have to have, and I'm sure Sue Binias will develop that wonderfully, we need to have very precise elements in GCST. Not only the emissions, but what we have, where we have made progress, and it's very important because it's very easy to just to throw the baby with the, with the, with the water and say, well, nothing has happened. Enormous amount of things have happened, but not enough and too slowly. So that has to be described precisely in GST. And we have to have the buy-in of countries to go further on the ambition cycle. So I stop there. 
Clarence, thank you. I will remember your phrase, it's a moment of truth uh, coming up at COP28. And we're going to get into the themes of looking backward and looking forward in a moment. But let, let me bring in Sue Binius. Uh Sue is the Deputy Special Climate Envoy uh, in the Office of the U.S. Special, uh, Special Presidential Envoy for Climate in the United States. Um, for more than 25 years, Sue served as the lead climate lawyer for the U.S., during which time she played a central role in all major international climate negotiations, including the Paris Agreement. Sue, thrilled you you could take time to join us. Um, anything to add to to what Laurence was just saying, and and what is the U.S. government's view with respect to the global stock take? Well, thanks, David. Um, great to see you, and great to join this uh, esteemed panel. Um, let me you you know me well, so you know I'm going to have to put this in terms of a number of points. So I, I have five points that I'll try to to make. Um, the first one is that, as Laurent says, this is the first global stock take, 2023. So it's very, very important that we get it right. It sets the precedent for future stock takes, which will take place every five years. It sends the signal to the marketplace, to countries, to other actors of how we think we are doing. And I think it's important that we show that the parties to the Paris Agreement are up to the task of reviewing themselves and figuring out uh, where we are and what, and what happens next. So that's point one. The second is there's a lot of kind of balancing that I think needs to go on uh, within the global stock take. And Laurence has um, kind of hit on certain aspects of it. The way I would put it is um, we need to show a balance between the progress that we have made, so the positives, uh, versus the gaps. If we only focus on the gaps, which some are inclined to do, I don't think that gives an accurate picture of, of how uh, kind of influential the Paris Agreement has been. And I want to give a couple examples of that before I turn to the other examples of balance. So, you know, before Paris, the business as usual projection was that we would be up at uh, 3.5 degrees by 2100. And now, no matter what metric you look at, it's well below that. Some are say that if, you know, if we do everything that's been committed to fully implement, we'd be on a, maybe a 1.7 trajectory, worst case, a little more than two degrees, but certainly not anywhere near 3.5. Countries have, well over 100 countries have updated their preliminary NDCs, even though they didn't actually have to until 2025. Um, many dozens of countries, I would say, have put in long-term strategies, which the whole concept of long-term strategy was a Laurence Tubiana idea. Um, other international organizations have used the Paris goals as their inspiration the International Maritime Organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization, they have both within the last couple of years come up with long-term targets and measures in order to be Paris aligned. Um, Non-party stakeholders are all talking about uh, 1.5 aligned this, Paris aligned that, Paris compliant, whatever. I think it is basically the set the standard or, or the North Star, some say, uh, for action. Um, and of course, there have been all kinds of side initiatives beyond what has been agreed, you know, by consensus as formal decisions, whether that's the Global Methane Pledge, something we did with the EU or the Green Shipping Challenge, something the U.S. did with Norway or, you know, on and on. So um, I think we need to be clear about that. At the same time, of course, we need to say what the gaps are and be very honest about that. So that's one form of balance. I think another form of balance is... Um, 
as Laurence put it, it's not enough to just say where we are now and what the gaps are. We need to say where we need to be, the backward looking and the forward looking. Uh, some people call these the responses, the recommended responses. Um, so we can't just stop with here are the problems. And that needs to be uh, a balance as well. Um, the third point is we need to be science-based. I think one of the other strengths of the Paris Agreement is that it calls for its own review. And it does so on the basis of science and other factors, of course. And um, in all of, I guess, the US proposals for what the recommended responses should be, we are actually looking to the IPCC report, the latest, the International Energy Agency reports on what we need to do to, to align with 1.5. Um, so that's kind of point, point three. Uh, point four is, okay, let's get specific about the responses. Now, the global stock take is not just uh, focused on mitigation. It was um, one of the sort of, I guess, balances of the Paris Agreement that the global stock take would look at all the aspects of, of Paris, including adaptation and finance, et cetera. But I'm going to focus specifically on responses related to kind of keeping the 1.5 degree limit uh, within reach or alive or however you want to put it. And um, the IPCC, the IEA, they all could point in certain directions. And we think it's important for the global stock take to include those uh, steps uh, in it. They're not prescriptive. They're not saying each individual country needs to do these things. They are collective, just like the global stock take. We're not trying to change the the basic uh, kind of bottom-up, nationally determined nature of the of the Paris Agreement, but we think these things are critical. One is um, that global peaking of emissions should happen no later than 2025. Another um, relates to the next set of NDCs, which, as Laurent says, will be due in 2025. We think it's important that countries move towards including all greenhouse gases in this next stage, particularly the countries that are most consequential with respect to uh, keeping 1.5 degrees alive. We think it's important to put the energy sector on a net zero pathway, and that includes um, kind of a cluster of issues. It includes the proposal to triple renewable energy capacity by 2030. It includes doubling energy efficiency. It includes some kind of formulation regarding the phase out, phase down of unabated uh, uh, fossil fuels, which will be, I think, its own negotiation. And we think it's important to include there uh, putting an end to permitting of new unabated coal power generation. And that those four things, I think, will be one of the maybe the last issues um, resolved. But we don't think we should only look at energy. We think we need to halt deforestation by 2030. That's another point that's made by the IPCC and the IEA. And we need to focus on non-CO2 gases, which often get uh, sidelined. They're actually responsible for about half of warming to date. And we think that needs to be um, an aspect of the global stock take. And then, of course, on the side, we need to continue these side initiatives that don't involve all, all parties. They're not like negotiated in the same way, but they are very consequential. They don't take the place of the global stock take, which is a negotiated outcome, which is the political outcome of the of the COP. But they are a good. I call them the side dish. You know, in addition to the to the main course of the uh, the negotiated outcome. My last point is that you know, in the process of negotiating this um, global stock take or GST, as we call it, 
some countries are making efforts to use the global stock take as, you know, a kind of backdoor way of walking backwards from the Paris Agreement, whether that's uh, highlighting the convention instead of the Paris Agreement and acting like there there is no Paris Agreement, uh, or trying to go back to the division that was um, reflected in the Kyoto Protocol of developed countries versus developing countries, which we kind of sidestepped in the Paris Agreement, which is what enabled it to, to actually gain uh, the agreement of everyone in the world, um, that is not something the U.S. could uh, could accept uh, as an outcome of the uh, of the global stock take. So why don't I stop there? Thank you. Sue, there's so much in that. Th- thank you. And um, as you say, we've been talking about these topics for many years and um, go- going back and forth. And I, I'm gonna let, let me get the conversation going by talking picking up your balance point. And in your balance point, you talked about all the great things that are happening. Well, let me take a more pessimistic view and offer an assertion and and see what people in this round table think. And and, and let me assert that despite all these good things, the world is failing disastrously right now to address the climate change problem. Um, Just to rattle off of, you know, a few statistics or July July 6 2023 was the warmest day ever recorded July 2023 was the warmest month ever recorded September 2023 smashed records for the warmest September ever recorded I saw someone use the English word gobsmacking to discuss that which is an unusual word but it kind of captures an in, something that's enormous um and of course one summer doesn't make a trend but uh, nine of the warmest the, the nine warmest years in history have been the last nine years. And we're seeing the impacts all over the world with incredible flooding, um, incredible um, uh, heat waves. Uh, Pakistan, a third of Pakistan submerged in floods last year, terrible floods in China um, this year, heat waves all over. And, and perhaps most fundamentally, notwithstanding all the efforts, global emissions of heat trapping gases continue to rise. Um, so, so there's a pessimistic scenario. Let me just see whether other participants in this session would like to, you know, agree or disagree or offer thoughts. And let me bring in um, first um, Paul Akins. Um, uh, Paul, Paul is a professor of resources and environmental policy at the UCL Institute for Sustainable Resources, University College London. He previously served as co-director and deputy director at the UK Energy Research Center and as a member of UNEP's International um, Research Panel. Uh, professor Akins, uh, your, your thoughts? Well, thanks, David, and thanks to the previous two speakers. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, I'm going to start by saying that I think the uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, remember, its key objective was to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. And it's clearly failed on that basis. Uh, latest calculations are that uh, climate change already killed 2 million people, and that's, uh, that's climbing fast. With regard to the Paris Agreement, Um, Certainly it is failing. Whether it's failing disastrously uh, depends on whether the very positive things that Susan brought out uh, actually deliver on that. Um, I mean, one thing she didn't say was that if emissions peak in 2025, they've got to fall by over 40% by 2030 in order to keep us on track for Paris. I mean, that is huge. uh, given that we've not experienced anything like that except during COVID. And yet that's got to happen every year uh, 
in, in the five years after 2025, assuming they peak. And to me, the biggest failure of all is that we have signally failed to tame the fossil fuel industry. My research, some of my most influential research in this field has been to calculate the quantities of fossil fuel reserves that have got to stay underground and, I, and not be burnt if we're to have any chance of meeting the Paris Agreement targets. And we're nowhere with that. Uh, governments want to produce every drop of fossil fuels that are on their territories. And the companies are absolutely blinded by the gobsmacking amounts of money they can make at the moment with uh, with oil and gas prices. Uh, and they're uh, wanting to expand their production just as fast as they can. And under those circumstances, uh, we will really will get a disastrous failure to respond to climate change. Uh, well, uh, Professor Polikin, thank you very much. Uh, let me turn next to Professor Jody Freeman, um, who is the Archibald Cox Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Um, Jody, leading scholar in administrative environmental law, served as counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House in 2009 to 2010. Uh, Jody, what are your thoughts? Well, I just want to um, present a little bit more optimism because I think it's uh, warranted. And I think all of these things are going on at the same time. You know, it's, it's appropriate to be daunted by the scale of the challenge. But at the same time, we have made some quite remarkable changes. And I, I just, from the U.S. perspective, what's happened with legislation in the U.S. Congress, what's happened domestically in the United States in the last few years is really nothing short of stunning. You know, the, many of us are familiar with the Inflation Reduction Act an infrastructure bill that went along with it. And the reason I cite it in particular is I think it's a model for industrial policy and it has real spillover effects that are very positive in terms of unlocking massive investment in clean energy. And for the US, it's a, it's a remarkable shift away from trying to put in place a cap or a price on carbon, which clearly isn't on the table right now for the United States, but instead here's this really historic set of investments, subsidies, tax credits, et cetera, in clean energy deployment. And the scale of it is unprecedented. And I think it's having, it's leveraging even more investment coming from the private sector. So I, I cite it because I think it's not just a small positive development, it's a kind of sea change in how the United States is approaching climate policy. And I wanna make two other points there. We have not seen, at least in the US, and I, I'm curious to know how much of this is happening in other jurisdictions around the world, we've never seen a convergence of policymaking in the form of legislation like these kinds of investments, along with regulation, driving emissions down, setting a floor, along with industry commitments at the same time. So one good example of this is in the transportation sector with electric vehicles. We've never had those three trends tracking, policy spurring investment, regulation with standard setting, spurring transition to EVs, and the industry committing at the same time. That's historic. And I think if we can try to make those alignments happen in other sectors, um, we'll really be on a much better positive track. The, 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 the other thing to cite that's remarkable to me is the role of business here. And if you look around at the range of net zero commitments, it, there are real questions about the veracity, whether they'll be implemented. Of course, they require accountability. But I think there's a recognition across at least some swath of leading businesses that they have to be serious about their net zero commitments. And that is a trend that I think has picked up steam 
and really is going to unleash tremendous opportunity and innovation. So I think there is real reason to be enthusiastic and optimistic. While, of course, the scale of this is is obviously quite daunting. Um, I, the last thing, the last point I'd make is, while everyone, including me, is excited about what we're calling industrial policy and these investments in clean energy, there's no question that the missing piece is a price on carbon. Um, I feel like Richard Newell is going to nod if I just keep saying we need a price on carbon. And if, if the problem is emissions, then we should focus on the emissions directly and not just approach it indirectly by subsidizing the alternatives, which I'm all for. But, you know, if we don't price carbon or cap carbon and create some cost, um, I don't think we will spur the kind of energy, clean energy deployment that we're really after here. So I'm quite excited that level of innovation we're seeing in the private sector. I'm excited about the policy innovation we've seen the U.S. flip to. I think it's unlocking things internationally. So I, I would meet some of the pessimism I've heard with some of the optimism I'm describing. Jody Freeman, thank you. And I'm going to turn to Ian Perry, Richard Newell, and Mandy Rambaros, and, and, and then maybe we'll get specific about successes and failures. Um, but let, let me bring in uh, Ian Perry, who's the principal environmental fiscal policy expert in the fiscal affairs department at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, prior to yeah. joining IMF, uh, Ian was at Resources for the Future. Uh, his work focuses on the development of analytic models to quantify the economic impacts um, of and efficient responses to climate change. Ian, uh, any yeah, thoughts? Um, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to put some uh, numbers out there. So um, <clears throat> to get on track with the um, two degrees Celsius target, we need to be cutting global emissions 25% below 2019 levels by 2030. To get on track with 1.5, we need to be cutting emissions 50% below 2019 levels <clears throat> by 2030. And if we don't achieve those emissions reductions by 2030, it really does start to put the risks of uh, us exceeding those uh, temperature uh, targets, uh, <clears throat> puts those temperature targets at risk. Now, if we were to, um, <clears throat> if the four countries were to fully achieve uh, their current mitigation pledges for 2030, that would cut global emissions, according to our estimates, 12% below uh, 2019 levels. So uh, we need a huge scaling up of global uh, mitigation ambition uh, by 2030 to get on track. We also need a huge scaling up of uh, uh, <clears throat> policy implementation. Um, we really need measures equivalent to a global carbon price that's uh, above, perhaps well above, <clears throat> $75 per tonne by 2030 to get global emissions in line with staying below a 2 degrees Celsius. Uh, but at the moment, if we, if, we, if we just look at, I know there are other policies, renewables policies, uh, electric vehicle policies, whatever, but if we just looked at uh, the carbon pricing schemes, the global average carbon price at the moment is $5 uh, per tonne, so very small relative to where we uh, need to be. So I just, I just wanted to uh, put those numbers out there. Uh, thank you, Ian Perry, for those numbers. Those are pretty sobering numbers, too, particularly your last statistic about the average being $75 a ton and the, the, uh, that's needed, or the, the average is $5 a ton currently and $75 a ton needed. Um, um, let me turn to Richard Newell, uh, who is president and CEO of Resources for the Future. Uh, Richard has held senior government positions, including administrator of the U.S. Energy Information Administration and senior economist for energy and environment at the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Richard, great to see you. Welcome. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, thanks, David. 
Um, I want to echo uh, two of Sue Biniaz's points that we need to be both science-based and we also need to be uh, balanced. Um, we recently released an issue brief as part of the global stock take that deployed a model we developed that includes a set of statistically based uh, greenhouse gas emission scenarios that also estimates the future temperature increase associated with those scenarios based on state-of-the-art climate modeling. And what those results show is that we are absolutely not on track to meet the goal of the Paris Agreement to limit global temperature rise to well below two degrees, uh, never mind 1.5 degrees. Uh, unfortunately, we're instead on a path that has a 50% probability of exceeding 1.5 degrees in just the next few years. Um, and is centered around a two and a half degree increase by the end of the century, could be higher. So that's the sobering news. Um, but to echo, I think, what Jody Freeman said, the good news is that we actually are making substantial progress. We are turning a corner. The cost of renewables has come down dramatically. Uh, the range of technological options has expanded greatly, uh, not just renewables, but advanced nuclear, uh, fossil fuel coupled with carbon capture and storage, direct air capture, electric vehicles, synthetic fuels, hydrogen, huge expansion of the range of opportunities we have for confronting this issue. Um, and the climate solutions and the energy transition have become much more central to the business strategies and progress um, is being happening as well in finance. Now, we're just way behind um, and the progress isn't moving fast enough. We should have been where we are now probably a couple decades ago. And so the conundrum here is that it is true that we are not in the place we need to be. It's also true that we are making progress and continue to need to make that progress. Uh, thank you, Richard Newell. Let me let me uh, bring in uh, Mandy uh, Ramparos, who's Vice President of Global Climate Cooperation at Environmental Defense Fund. Um, she leads EDF's work to promote more ambitious and effective global climate action of the Paris Agreement. Um, uh, and prior to joining EDF, Ramparos was uh, for two decades um, at uh, Africa's largest electric utility, uh, ESCOM Holdings. And in, in that capacity, um, led a lot of clean energy work in South Africa and was key to the Just Energy Transition Partnership negotiated at COP26 with South Africa. Uh, Mandy, thank you for joining us. What are your thoughts? Thanks, David, and, and thanks for, for inviting me and for having me. And I think, you know, a lot of the previous speakers echoed a lot of what we are thinking, but I want to respond to your point around whether you're being pessimistic. I think you're being realistic to be honest. Um, you know, if we look at what the COP process achieved over the years, it it was it was good at the time and for the purpose that it served in, in having collective action globally on an issue that is affecting us globally. So for that reason, um, you know, the COP and then now the global uh, stock tape provides a very important input uh, in terms of political moments that we need, where we need governments to collectively act. So I think we all knew what the global stock take was going to say. Um, but I think what it does very importantly is provide the information and data that countries are going to need in order for them to produce more ambitious NDCs. And because we have the global stock take, you know, nobody can deny that that actually we need to be more ambitious. But I think what would be useful going forward and, and maybe to remove some of the pessimism is to have an action-oriented agenda coming out of COP. Um, now, I was involved in, in the UNFCCC. I negotiated for South Africa on Article 6 and carbon markets for several years. So I know the pain of the UNFCCC negotiations. Um, 
But I do think what we need to see more and more happening, and I'm glad we're seeing it a bit more now at COPS, is that it's not just a closed-door mystery that happens behind doors in terms of what happens with the government negotiations, but absolutely needs to include more and more the broader stakeholders. Um, so business, civil society um, needs to come to the table. So when I listen to what previous speakers were saying around we need a carbon price, we need what the IEA is talking about in terms of tripling renewables, in order to turn that into action, you need business around the table. You need civil society around the table to talk about that. So I think it's very, very key. And, and we put this into a paper that EDF wrote together uh, with C2S uh, uh, a couple of months ago was, you actually need an action-oriented agenda. And I think very simple asks is, let's look at how we reduce methane emissions as soon as possible. We know that if we can reduce methane emissions um, by 45% by 2030, we could actually be on track to meet the 1.5, uh, given the impact of methane. Conserving tropical forests, absolutely important. And we talk about it, we have great initiatives coming out on the principles, but actually putting that into action, I think is still missing. And then increasing this re renewable ambition. So somebody mentioned that the cost of renewables have dropped. Absolutely, they have. But if you look at investing in renewables and you know, in, in developing the Just Energy Transition Plan for South Africa, this was very clear that investing in developing countries where we can have the biggest bang for our buck now in reducing future emissions and, and scaling up renewables, it's still expensive because of the, the risk value in or the risk perceived risk in investing in developing countries. So in order to action all of these, it's extremely important to recognize national circumstances, to build that into financing mechanisms for innovation and then get scaling up. So the legislation that's been passed, the CBAM in the EU, the IRA and Bill in the US are great domestically, but we need to look at how do we then translate some of those learnings to developing countries and actually action the flow of finances also in a way that's responsible to enable the scaling up of renewables and the other actions we want to see coming out of the GST. Thanks, David. Thanks, Mandy. Uh, and thanks for thanks for bringing financing in so centrally. As, as a couple of speakers have mentioned, the global stock take is not just about mitigation, but it's about um, it's about finance and it's about adaptation as well. Um, let me, I see Laurence has her hand. Let me turn to um, Ambassador Laurence Tubiana and then bring in uh, Patrick. Uh, Laurence. Just to echo uh, what Mandy and others have said, I think that's why this global stock take and looking forward is important. Evidently, we are not there. We, we are not on track. Uh, but at the same time, we have to renovate totally the process as it stands. Now it's no more the big framework that finally South Africa in reality just started because the Durban uh, COP was absolutely instrumental in, in framing what we have to deliver. We should not forget that. So it was really very, very collective effort. But I think now is a moment to integrate the business, uh, all the complexity of the climate regime where Sue Binias described how the alignment is taking place. And uh, I think we have to go back to the center now and to have really the business, the local authorities embedded into the process. It should not be negotiation. It should be how we implement, how we keep accountability between the government, the local authorities, the business, the financial institution. 
we well, the, the big issue is a accountability mechanism, at least in the regime itself. But really, uh, a lot of the enormous technological transformation, just the fact that two years ago, one on 25 cars was uh, which so was selling is was is was electric. Now it's one on five. It's just a tremendous transformation. So a, a number of things that have been unleashed by Paris Agreement. And unfortunately, uh, in a way, probably with a, a, a bad effect of the U.S. getting out and then coming back, uh, that doesn't accelerate, of course, the mobilization. But I think that uh, now we we a number of these technological innovation, I think Richard was mentioning, will deliver over time now. And we we you know with technology, you never know. On cars, now we know. Uh, we have seen on renewable energy, now we know. On batteries, we begin to know. But what will happen on hydrogen, on electrolysis? On ex- so this will, the maturity will maybe more at the, at the corner, as you said. So I think the important thing is to have all actors at the table with their implement, implementation plan and investment plan. We have to discuss very concrete things, which Frankly, the COP is not totally fit for that for that purpose. So we may need to invent something different. On me saying, I am a big fan that we have to tackle a number of sectors and have maybe specific processes, not only voluntary, but maybe with more a little bit more teeth, like we had in the Montreal Protocol, for something like me saying. But just an idea, I think we need to innovate now and to make the system progress. Uh, thank you, Laurence Tubiana. This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings, to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Cotmore. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network production.